Welcome to Investors Chronicle Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters and joining me today are Emma Adjimung, Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle and Ed Smith, Head of Asset Allocation Research at Rathbones. If you're an investor looking for growth, a go-to area is Asian equities and a key driver of this strong growth has been China. However, this economy has matured, so now some investors are looking elsewhere for fast growth, including the other major economy in the region, India. Ed, why do some investors think that India could be a better growth prospect than China? Well, let's start with demographics, the number of people uh, available to, to produce stuff. India has uh, about 875 million people of working age. China has about a billion so China's uh, ahead. But unless China has a radical rethink on immigration policy, which is pretty pretty unlikely, uh, one billion is about as large as the working age population in China is going to get. Whereas in India, it's going to keep on growing and it's going to surpass that one billion mark by 2025. Um, so there's plenty of opportunity for growth there. Human capital in terms of education uh, as well. China is pretty much 100% literate. Whereas India, three in 10 people still can't read or write. So there's there's scope for catch up there. Uh, and there's also greater scope for India to invest more and for growth to be higher because of this higher rate of investment. India is grossly underinvested. China has the opposite problem. It's overinvested, as, as I'm sure many of your listeners well know. So there's greater scope for catch up there. The third contribution to, to growth after demographics uh, capital investment is, is productivity. Both China and India are suffering, like most of the world, from a big slump in productivity. Uh, although, again, you know, India is a bit further behind in terms of tech, in terms of technology. So there is greater scope for catch up again for India there. Okay, some um, pretty compelling points. I can see why these investors are persuaded. What about you, Ed? Do you do you agree with them? Well, yes and no. I think inevitably China is going to have a slower rate of growth uh, than, than India simply because it's much further down that path of economic development. And you know, that's a, uh, that, uh, the slowing process is somewhat in, in, ineluctable. But India does have some serious challenges ahead of it. If we wind the clock back for 20, 30 years, uh, let's go to say pretend we're in the late 90s. Well, both India and China had great demographics or decent demographics, had great opportunity to invest a lot and productivity was high and getting higher. Um, India was in a great position then, pretty much the same position as, as it's in now, all those compelling points that, 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 that we referenced. Um, but China has been the great success story and it sort of left in India for dust. Uh, some people say, oh, well, that's, you know, China joined the World Trade Organization in 2001 took uh, advantage of globalization but india joined the world trade organization in 1995 and yet yeah, it didn't capitalize on on that at all and that's be really because of politics it's because of the government yeah, china had a government that did everything it could to uh, invest for china to become that global trade superpower and india you know, was just frozen up by you know, bureaucratic sort of lassitude and India's got to break that lassitude in order to really deliver. 
so yeah i think the natural advantage of india is there but it doesn't but it does have some big challenges and of course investors have got quite excited about india and they're expecting them to succeed in those challenges uh, and that could be a problem so there are some stumbling blocks for india but what about china i mean um i think as you hinted at before there might be some things that hold back growth there as well yeah, well, it's that problem of overinvestment and particularly overinvestment funded by debt. Total debt excluding the financial sector in China equates to about 260% of GDP, so 260% of economic output. How now, does that compare, just for reference, let's say with debt perhaps in the UK, Europe, North America, just to put it in context? Yeah, that's like a, a big number. It is, and is we can often quite get lost yeah, in these numbers, yeah. can't we? Well, across advanced uh, economies... In aggregate, that ratio is 270%. Okay, so actually... So actually China's a little lower, lower than, yeah. than, than, the, than, the, than the Western okay. Western world. But what's happened with China is that it's accumulated that debt very, very quickly, particularly in the corporate sphere or quasi-corporate, you know, state-owned enterprise uh, sphere in China. And when debt accumulates very quickly, that's when you can run into problems. You know, perhaps rather counterintuitively, the uh, the amount of debt outstanding in a country actually doesn't really have any information about whether or not that country is likely to fall into a debt crisis. What's far more uh, predictive is the rate at which um, that debt has been accumulated. And that sounds fairly serious. Is China facing a major debt crisis or a financial crisis, you know, perhaps like the one we saw a few years back in um, um, developed economies? Mm. Uh, I think if we were having this conversation three or four years ago, I would be a lot more uh, concerned because uh, yeah, we said that the, the the best indicator of the probability of a debt crisis is how rapidly debt is being accumulated. In particular, how so how rapid debt is being accumulated relative to the recent trend. Now, two or three, four years ago, yeah, it had it was it, that amount of debt accumulation was just accelerating into the stratosphere. That's not a mixed metaphor, but um, <laughs> but it's slow. Thank, thankfully, you know, really thankfully, it has slowed right down in the last two or three years. China is still accumulating debt, but you know, relative to the recent trend, it's much slower. So that's sort of point number one uh, why I don't think we're going to have a debt crisis. Point number two is really you know, you've got to look at both sides of the balance sheet when you think about debt, uh, and debt in China has largely been funded by domestic capital. Now, in the late 90s, a lot of Asian economies had a debt crisis because they amassed a lot of debt funded by foreign capital. And when foreign investors had enough of the sort of structurally weak outlook, they just withdrew all their money and their balance of payments profile just totally collapsed. Uh, But in China, most of that uh, debt is funded by domestic capital. So you haven't got that sort of incendiary risk of foreign capital flight. Um, thirdly, a lot of that domestic capital is in the form of bank deposits. And again, that's a really stable, sticky form of, of, of funding. Remember the financial crisis, 2007-2008, in the Western world, you know, was in no small part driven by the fact that banks had overextended themselves beyond their deposit base. They were reliant on rather dodgy sort of interbank you know, short-term paper uh, and, and, and not... Um, uh, 
deposits. Um, so that's the that's the third reason. Uh, and fourthly, uh, and perhaps most importantly and most uniquely to China, uh, China's debt has largely been issued by state-owned banks, and it's been taken out by state-owned companies and local government vehicles. So you know, when it's all really about the, the what's happening with state-owned money, it can avoid a debt crisis by shifting money from the left pocket to the right pocket. doesn't mean that's not going to have implications on growth, but it does mean the risk of a debt crisis is probably quite low. Okay, so what are those implications for Chinese economic growth? Yeah, um, well, I think, um, well, we can try and quantify it, actually, which, which I did have done an exercise um, uh, a couple of years ago. So a couple of years ago, I wrote a big paper on the, the long-term outlook for, for China's growth. It's called Taming the Dragon. It's still available on Rathbone's website for anyone who still wants to have a look. And in that, we, we um, discussed a concept called excess debt. So we basically tried to estimate all the debt that had been taken out and used to fund unproductive, wasteful uh, projects, you know, bridges to nowhere, that sort of, that sort of thing. And we estimated that about 40% of the debt that had been taken out uh, had uh, been put into um, projects that had actually decreased productivity totally. Yeah, we would have been better off if they hadn't occurred. Uh, so then we compared that to um, uh, about 20 other economies uh, that had experienced a debt crisis caused by all this excess debt over the last 30 to 40 years. And we looked at what happened to their investment growth subsequently. Uh, so we try uh, and that and so we so that's what we used as a baseline to estimate what China's you know, wasteful uh, debt could do to to could do to growth. Uh, and so we found that investment will fall by about six and a half percent over the next 10 years relative to what it would have otherwise been. So that's that's quite meaningful. So and that sort of translating that uh, means that investment will add around about 3% a year to GDP, potential GDP, whereas previously, you know, over the last 10 years, it's, it was double that. Yeah, so it's quite a big uh, yeah. impact on it. You know, uh, that's probably that's made China's rate of growth slow down a lot more than it would uh, would have done otherwise. That said, a lot of um, developed economies would probably love 3% a year. Oh, yes. Um, growth. <laughs> Turning to, uh, let's say, investors, we've obviously been talking about GDP and economic growth, but investors don't buy GDP. Investors mm. buy shares in listed companies, whether in China or anywhere else. So does China's GDP growth really matter to investors buying shares listed in Greater China? Yeah, great question. Uh, assessing the correlation of GDP and, and Chinese equities can be quite difficult because both can be rather flawed measures. We all know that official estimates of GDP are somewhat suspect in, in, in China. Not because I think Chinese officials are trying to pull the wool o over our eyes. I think it's just because they really find it difficult to get decent data themselves. Um, and of course, Chinese A shares, you know, the, the equities that are listed in Shanghai and Shen, Shenzhen, are, have been uh, an absolute casino over the last <laughs> few years. So c looking at the correlation between GDP, which is quite a flawed estimate of the economy, and Chinese A share, which is just a speculative uh, sort of 
you know, free for all um, isn't it probably doesn't tell you much because the measures are measures are bad. So what what have we done to to try and assess the genuine correlation, which is of course what we as investors are really interested in. I have something that I called a now cast of Chinese GDP growth or Chinese activity growth. And it basically takes a load of data series that are much less susceptible to manipulation and and, some, and, and, and all that funny business uh, and uh, says, OK, well, based on these higher quality data, what's the rate of growth in China? Uh, and that uh, used to track GDP, official GDP quite nicely until about 2012 when they uh, ch- diverge quite meaningfully and we've noticed a strong correlation between that sort of better estimate of chinese activity and the performance of asian equities or 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 hong kong equities relative to uh to the global uh, equity benchmark so there is quite a strong correlation uh between the 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 prospects whether whether china is uh, speeding up or slowing down and whether asian equities are outperforming or underperforming okay um now we um obviously discussed debt in detail do you have any other concerns about investing in china um yes uh, President Xi, yeah, he's an extremely statist president. Yeah, he's educated, he's very reform-minded, but for him the state comes first, probably more so than any uh, leader since Mao. Um, so there's always the risk that profitability um, or even a company's very existence will be subordinated to political or social goals. I remember when I was in China in 2016 and before, uh, say nowadays, Chinese officials are are talking about the need to reform, the need to curtail debt, the need to uh, shut down spare capacity. Um, And, you know, that but. But just a couple of years ago, that was forbidden. Like they all knew that's what they needed to do, but you weren't allowed to say so to, to the, especially not to the Westerners. Um, but when I was, uh, but I was there seeing a steel company, amongst other things, and the steel company were, were very open, saying, "Yeah, we're probably going to be forced to merge with a terrible steel company to, to improve, you know, the prospects for the steel industry for for China PLC." But obviously, that's quite bad for the few shareholders in this really high quality um, steel company. Um, so there's always that threat of of of, of government in, in intervention. Um, yeah, I think that's you know, to, making a comparison to India. I think there's still all those you know there's there's the threat of government of government intervening in business in in india as well but it's perhaps less heavy-handed less about appropriation more about sort of unhelpful regulation and protectionism in india whereas in china there is that that risk of of uh of, of the hulk firm just being directly subordinated to political goals i suppose something you face in uh, any dictatorship really though yeah. Yeah. Um, turning back to India, now you said, um, all right, there might be annoying regulations, but at the end of the day, India is a democracy, which hopefully makes it a bit more accountable. So do you think the growth in India looks like it might follow a smoother course? Yeah, well, it, I mean, in India, growth also rests on reform. It needs to invest. It needs to modernise. It certainly needs to open up. Um. And yeah, imagine if India could do to services 
and to ancillary services, what China did to manufacturing over the last 20 years. Yeah, how spectacular could that be for, 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 for Indian growth? And actually, it would be very problematic, I think, for Western economies and Western governments if a lot of services jobs were, were now being done um, uh, in India. Um, but uh, but all of that rests rests on on the need to to do some pretty significant reform to get the investment in place that's necessary and the uh, more open uh, financial borders uh, and, and 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 trading relationships uh, needed. And I'm a bit sceptical. Uh, you know, the, Prime Minister Modi has been in place for a, a number of years now. Uh, and yet, uh, the, the uh, and everyone talks about you know he's the great reformer, but progress has been really slow. Uh, last year, we had a thirty-two billion dollar recapitalization of a belie- of its beleaguered banking sector. That was great to see, but man, that was a long time coming. And that's a really technical, dry issue that most voters on the street have n- no interest or, or info- information on. Um, so, uh, but you know, one of the big things that they still need to do and haven't really addressed at all is land reform. So, at the moment, a lot of investment doesn't take place in India because nobody can get any land to build a bridge on, a hospital on, a factory on, um, and that's not because yeah, you know, there's plenty of land there. Um, uh, it's just uh, there's so much red tape about procurement that even the government can't can't really procure uh, the land that it wants. Now that is. Uh, a much uh, more contentious issue, you know, you know, property rights, land rights, you know, all of that. You know, that is something that gets voters uh, worked up. Um, yeah, how's that going to go? I'm, I'm a bit sceptical. I don't think it's going to go anywhere this year because we've got eight local government elections uh, and reform tends to be parked whilst you're, you're securing victory in local government elections. But, yeah, that there's always local government elections in India. So again, that sort of, that, that, that um, impedes the pace of this needed reform. So I think, yeah, growth, yeah, India has the potential to, to do very well, but, but um, expectations are high and I think there's a lot of barriers. Okay, um, I'll repeat my question on China, on growth. Um, does growth, Indian growth, matter to investors in Indian shares? Yeah, Indian shares tend to be a bit more domestically uh, uh, facing. So there is there is a, um, a decent relationship between in, in, in Indian growth. Uh, but I think what we've noticed yeah, since Modi came to power is that Indian shares just suddenly started trading at a big premium. And I think a lot of that is for the, for the hope that, that India will modernise and, uh, um, uh, and proceed at a, a much better um in much better shape under under Modi. In fact, uh, if we look at the forwards price to earnings ratios in valuation multiples in Indian equities, Indian equities trade uh, the fourth most expensive. They're the fourth most expensive market of the twenty three emerging markets that we look at uh, at Rathbones. Yeah, you know, so so they uh, and they have been um, for for a while. Um, so I think there is a lot of high expectations baked. Uh, into the, in, in 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 into that and um, uh, and so uh, I think for that reason alone that 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 premium um, is very much linked to 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 the economics the outlook for for, for potential GDP. 
Okay. Um, what about, we've been talking about India and China, but obviously they are not the only emerging markets. Mm. What about emerging markets more widely? How are they set to do in 2018 and beyond? Well, the weaker US dollar certainly helps. Yeah, when the, the dollar weakens, uh, because a lot of uh, goods are, are priced in dollars, uh, that boosts global trade. Uh, and it also boosts cross-border um, uh, liquidity because a lot of uh, lenders um, uh, sort of benchmark against the, against the dollar. Uh, and if the dollar depreciates, then now um, uh, 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 emerging market borrowers who may fund themselves in dollars are, are, have much better balance sheets. So I think that certainly helps. Uh, we're we're pretty confident uh, that Asian and emerging market equities are going to do better than developed market equities. Um, for most of the last, uh, I think, seven years, uh, emerging market equities have consistently underperformed developed market equities. And that's because, well, we think it's because the difference between emerging market economic growth and developed market economic growth has been shrinking. So uh, emerging market GDP growth isn't quite as high relative to developed market GDP growth as it has been in the past, and that gap has been uh, shrinking. We think that in 2018, that gap is going to start widening again. And that should mean that emerging market uh, equities outperform uh, again. Also, for investors that have a like a diversified um, portfolio, we've noticed that the the the, the beta of emerging markets um, to developed markets uh, and particularly U.S. equities. So, so how sensitive emerging market movements are to movements in developed markets, that's been declining. Uh, quite significantly, uh, actually. So, so uh, yeah, previously, yeah, big fall in U.S. equities used to mean an even bigger fall in emerging market equities. That's not the case anymore. So, you're getting a bit more diversification, uh, and we saw that in the recent bout of volatility uh, at the end of January, beginning of February. And also, we've noticed that that beta, that sensitivity, particularly declines when that gap between emerging market growth and developed market growth widens. So there's even more um, um, uh, benefit to come. So just to clarify now, we're not talking about economics. We're talking about markets and indices. Well, okay. we're talking about both. Yeah. yeah so, okay, the, yeah. so the emerging market uh, indices tend to do better than, than with the mm. developed market in- indices when emerging market economic growth does better than developed market. So is growth. MSCI Emerging Markets Index a good reflection? of economic growth in emerging markets then? It is, but it doesn't quite give us the exposures that we're after uh, because a lot of the yeah, MSCI emerging markets, is a, it's a market cap-weighted index like most in- indices. So those big firms that have been around for a long time tend to dominate. And in emerging markets, that's often these big state-owned conglomerates or state-owned behemoths um, that, uh, t- whose time's probably passed yeah, uh, and and they're not uh, keyed into the new drivers of growth. That's slightly higher tech manufacturing, or uh, service provision to the burgeoning emerging market consumer. Um, so uh, you probably have to do a bit more active stock picking than than than, than the MSCI uh, emerging emerging markets. But but yeah, I mean it it, it as a, as a as a broad indicator, it, it, it behaves yeah, how we would expect it to behave. 
I suppose on that note, would you say is it best to get emerging market exposure via an active fund or a passive fund? Uh, we tend to prefer active, but you've definitely got to do your homework. Yeah, it's often said that yeah, Asian equities, emerging market equities, yeah, they've got much far fewer research analysts are doing all of that you know, work on their Excel spreadsheets trying to identify you know, value. Is yeah, it's definitely far far less researched, and people therefore go, oh well, that must mean there's the active managers must have a field day because there's all of this you know, informational asymmetry to exploit. Actually, less than half of active funds uh, who invest in non-Japan Asian equities beat their benchmark, and that's actually fewer active managers beaten to their benchmark than in UK or European equities. Um, so, uh, so whilst we prefer active equities because it gives us the exposures to the new drivers of growth that the passive doesn't necessarily, you've, it's it's not easy to pick the people that are that are going to give you outperformance. So you've got to do your homework. Now, you said um, one of your frustrations um, with MSCI Emerging Markets Index was it, um, it doesn't necessarily give you exposure to what you like. So, what areas, geographically, sectorally, or whatever else, do you particularly like in emerging markets? Well, ge- geographically. I like countries like Indonesia or uh, or Vietnam with low levels of debt, uh, low reliance on debt for for growth, you know, decent current accounts and, and good demographics. Um, sectors, you know, I, I, yeah, I, I know it's a bit of a tired theme, but I re- still really like uh, sectors that are geared into a domestic consumption. You know, domestic consumption is only going to account for a bigger and bigger. Uh, share of emerging market growth you know there's plenty of uh, of opportunity uh, and and a few countries are, are including china are starting to domestic providers are, are starting to gain a lot of ground as as domestic consumers become you know, a little more confident in their own discernment you know they you know, they don't need to look at what people are uh, are buying in in in, in europe or, or new york uh, they sort of they trust their own uh, service providers. You know, we've seen that. We saw that in Japan and Korea. You know, decades ago, we're seeing that today. So I still really like the Asian consumption theme from a sector point of view. Thank you, Ed. Some really interesting insights there. And have a look at the IC Top 100 funds and IC Top 50 ETFs for suggestions on funds to give you exposure to emerging markets, India and China. In less than 10 years, TB Evenload Income has become one of the most highly regarded funds for investors seeking UK equity income. However, not satisfied with success in the whole market, its managers have embarked on a new venture. Emma, can you tell us a bit more? Yes, Evenload have launched a new fund called TB Evenload Global Income Fund. And as the name suggests, it has an income focus and invests in global companies. The fund is going to be run by some of the same team behind TB Evenload Income, the fund which has done very well. And and they will include Ben Peters, who is a co-founder and co-manager of Evenload, and Chris Elliott, who is an investment analyst on the UK fund and will be co-manager on this new fund. Why have they launched TB Evenload Global Income Fund? Well, they say it's because their investment process can be extended quite easily to a global focus. Their UK income fund has always had a multinational perspective and they've normally used up to the 20% limit that a UK fund can have in non-UK assets. And they just felt that it was um, they wanted to extend that multinational investing into a new fund. Okay, um, that said, Evenload, 
Aviv's funds manager is a small company focused on UK. Does it really have a resources to invest globally? It's a good question, Leonora. Um, they are quite a small team. But the team has been growing and the company has recruited more people to support this new fund. So they say that they feel quite comfortable with the level of resource that they have. Okay. So how will TB Even Node Global Income Funds managers go about selecting shares? They will follow the same process as they use in their UK income fund, um, which is to focus on asset light cash generative companies, which tend to be better able to cope with economic adversity and therefore able to grow the dividends into the future. Okay, so we're going to use a similar investment process, but at the end of the day, um, you know, two different funds, two different areas. So what will be some of the main differences between TB Evenload Global Income and the UK fund? The main difference is that income is going to be drawn from a much wider pool of companies. Having that global focus means that there's a much wider potential universe of stocks, And that's going to help with diversification of the fund and obviously the income streams as well. The fund will also be able to access some areas and sectors that are underrepresented in the UK, such as technology. So if it's got a wider pool and different areas, will the global fund have a higher yield? Um, Not necessarily. The fund says that they're going to aim for an attractive yield, but one that also delivers sustainable dividend growth. And the managers are keen that to get that balance right. And they say it's something that they think a lot about when they're considering whether or not to invest in a company, i.e. is it doing enough to both pay an attractive dividend now, but also build that future dividend growth. Thank you, Emma. And also see the interview in this week's magazine to see which shares TB Evenode Global Income Funds managers think are good value. That's all we've got time for today, but you can read more on China emerging markets and TB Evenload Global Income Fund on the website and in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.